Hey gang, welcome to episode 184 of the No Persinium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm Noah Nelson coming to you from the No Pro studio in Los Angeles, aka my kitchen table. This episode is brought to you by listeners like you and welcome to February. Uh, welcome to the uh, month where I'm totally focused on nothing but immersive. What, what? Yes, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm slowly getting excited about that <laughs> i'm gonna have like one day of being tired and uh, uh looking at everything and then uh the very next day boom right into the thick of it uh this time out on the show we have a jay rinsky of little cinema which is in new york but he was out here uh little cinema was uh contracted by uh tnt yes the network tnt to do an immersive premiere for their new series, I Am the Night, uh, that stars Chris Pine and is directed uh, by Patty Jenkins of Wonder Woman and Monster fame. Um, the series has started. Uh, the The immersive premiere included uh, the after party for the premiere out here in L.A., where they recreated some of the uh, the vibe of like the art parties that happen in the show and had an entirely original piece of art upstairs. I actually write about that on the website today. We're doing something a little different. We're releasing a, like a feature piece alongside the podcast uh, that is about the subject of the podcast. This is this is the kind of thing that, you know, if we were full time, we would probably do every week, uh, but we're not. So we never have the time to do it. But I thought it was uh, we had the opportunity and um, I thought this was a good little example to you. It was like, hey, hey, this is uh, this is what it looks like if we were, you know, if we were real, if we were a real uh child okay uh and not just something that we do slipping between the cracks uh and all night long whenever we have the time for um okay so that's what today's episode is about i want to do just one announcement only two announcements two announcements before we jump into some of the all of the usual stuff and then get to the actual interview announcement number one if you are here in la uh, Leia, our friends over at Leia, which I am a member, uh, are having what what uh, they're calling the Leia Bowl on Super Bowl Sunday. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not allowed to say Super Bowl. None of us are allowed to say Super Bowl. We have to say on big game day or whatever it is. Anyway, whatever. Come at me, NFL. Um, <laughs> we're having the Leia Bowl uh, on this Sunday. At uh, the Thirsty Crow in Los Angeles, 2.30 to 5.30. There are no TVs in the Thirsty Crow. Uh, we will not be watching the big game, despite the fact that the Los Angeles Rams are, in fact, in the game, uh, facing off against uh, that one team from that one place. Uh, it was sort of by accident that we landed on this, because we were like, hey, we, uh, we haven't put uh, the community together in a hot minute. And someone was like... February 3rd. I was like, that sounds good. Uh, and then last weekend I was like in somewhere else and I saw a place that was like, we're doing the Super Bowl, the big game on February 3rd. And I was like, Hey, wait a second. We're doing something on February. So yeah, that's how that happened. Um, but you know what? Yeah, uh, 
I, I used to love football. I, I really did. I was a big 49ers fan when I grew up in the Bay Area because it was Joe Montana and then Steve Young. It was like hard not to. And like, don't get me started on the Niners. I could talk forever. And then they sucked. And then everything about all the all the problems that there is with football, like for the players and everything else, the more that piles on, the more I'm just, you know what? It's, I wish I could love it. I wish I could love it, but I can't. So we're going to be at the Crow. Uh, it's always a good time uh, if you're around and if you're like, oh, I don't want to go do that thing to say, oh, something popped up. Or if you had no other plans, you just didn't, didn't know what you were going to do with yourself this Sunday and you're an immersive person here in L.A. Uh, Leia, of course, is the League of Experiential and Immersive Off Artists. This is Office Hours. So the, the Leia founders, of which I'm a member, uh, will be around talking, uh, kind of sharing insight on like what we've learned recently, what's going on, you know, where are the bylaws or the membership. And we will share that with those folks who were there. Uh, and indeed, there's some there's some things on the immediate horizon that we are uh, maneuvering around. Okay, so that is that. Um, Patreon this time out, no new patrons uh, to celebrate, which actually makes me a little sad. Um, Unless somehow I missed somebody. I don't think I missed anybody. Uh, It it sometimes happens, but no new patrons to celebrate this time. Uh, We are just $10 shy of the goal that we've crossed four times. So like, let's get Patreon.com slash no proscenium. The sustaining backers of Patreon of no proscenium of Patreon. All of us. The sustaining backers of no proscenium. They're the ones who are really winning here. I should have just started a crowdfunding platform. Uh, sustaining backers of no proscenium are Jan Budman, Lonnie Hansen, Ari Hurston, Mark Balthazar, Sam Kinkin, and Ross Sigworth. Thank you all for keeping this thing alive. Okay. Um, like I noted, there is a feature. Uh, frame it as a, a no pro night out that is on the website right now. Uh, you might even be listening to the podcast uh, while you're reading it. Cause we're going to embed it there uh, along with the, the podcast episode, uh, the normal podcast episode. And um, Jay Rinsky, uh, you know, he reached out to me uh, a couple of months back, I think even before, like when he's been trying to, when he's been in town doing stuff and we just missed each other, missed each other. We finally connected uh, at the cafe not far from uh, where I live, uh, had a great conversation. He was very graciously invited me to check out the work they were doing um, as the piece recounts. Uh, and as I talk about in this piece, like their, their, uh, this podcast episode, there was a part of this premiere they did that really plugged me back into the art side of all of this and plugged me back into like the why. Um, and, and that was a wonderful, wonderful experience to have. And, uh, we get into that and we get into what they do at a little cinema. We, we dive pretty deep on, on the piece, which is, you know, in some ways kind of unfair because like it's ephemeral, but a lot of this work overall is ephemeral. And so we talk about the direction of where they're going and, and sort of all, you know, a, a lot of spaces. It's a good conversation. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you learn a lot and I'll see you on the other side, which for me will be like two minutes from now, but for you, like about an hour. Oh, Hey, wait, one more thing. I forgot about it. I often forget about things. Uh, if you are a creator, uh, we are, um, over at the design summit, we're preparing an industry report. So we have an industry survey. So if you're a creator, uh, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. Please check out the survey. We're trying to gather as much information as we can in order to make the data side of the report really useful. The report is going to be released at IDS, but it'll be released 
to the public for free. There's no cost here. Uh, we wouldn't even know where to begin to monetize on this thing. Uh, so we are gathering the data in order to present it back to you uh, in a here's what we've all learned. Here's where things are. And of course, it's a self-reporting survey. So, by, you know, there's no way it can be completely complete. But check it out. Give it a think. And hopefully uh, drop it off with us. Um, the deadline for it, we're aiming for uh, a week from today. So February 8th is when we're looking to get it back so we can tabulate. All right. And now the music and the interview. This is always just a conversation. I sure. like to tell everybody. Um, and we just sort of, we just sort of stumble into it. So Jay, thank you for taking the time out of your trip to Los Angeles to sit down with me. Um, for those who don't know little cinema, and I think most of our New York listeners do, but I think there's probably a lot of our LA listeners who don't. What, just, let's start there. Let's start with the story of little cinema and then kind of wander into, what you're doing in Los Angeles right now and, and future and everything. So sure. Well, meander about. Uh, well, little cinema is an immersive art collective that's dedicated of using cinema as the main source of narrative in our productions and performances, uh, and is committed to really seeing things from a very non-literal lens, um, as much as we can and putting our own twist on things. Uh, many people have been comparing us to NWA in the 80s, taking James Brown records and giving them a completely different meaning and doing that to films. So we started as a really kind of grassroots thing at the House of Yes in mm. Brooklyn, New York, um, by putting on weekly shows that are were highly experimental. We'd choose a film every week, invite any artist as an open door policy to come in and put creative touches and perform while the film actually takes place. Um, adding circus, adding music, adding theater, adding chefs, adding anything we could into these highly experimental performances, productions, um, trying to do things different each time. Um, and now three years in, it's evolved into a bit of a bigger art collective with easily over 200 oh, performing wow. artists that work, collaborate, contribute creatively to the project. Um, and we've been gaining interest from other partners. So what started at House of Yes then turned into a partnership with Brooklyn Museum, Bonnaroo Music Festival, and more recently TNT, the um, network that has been embracing the concept of what we call an immersive premiere. And you've done that twice now, first with The Alienist, and then just recently, uh, like this week, with I Am The Night. Correct. Uh, and the first project we did with them was a mashup of Claws, Animal Kingdom, and Will, which in, rather than premiering each one of them separately, they gave us the content to create one show that premiered all three. Ah. That was successful, and then they went for the concept of an immersive premiere. And what that means is basically you you extract the narrative in the period of the film, 
and you just go all in on that story. So for The Alienist, we took over the Paramount lot in Los Angeles, and we turned it into New York City in 1896, complete with horse and carriages to bring in the kind of main cast, falling snow in the middle of L.A., a cast of 100 actors and extras that were playing role plays within this kind of world in order to get the people uh, complete. We had 400 attendees. We built a haberdashery shop. And as people walked in, that was the first stop. So we dressed them up and pretend sold them clothes. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, um, that's, yeah. I mean, that's, that sounds like the scale of... Do we, do, so was it more than just hats? Did you like put coats? Yes, we oh my put, God. yes, yeah, yeah. We. That's because like if we think about, um, there's, I mean, we all know there's secret cinema in, in London and like, that's one of the things they do when they'll, they'll go out. They'll like, they'll, they will sell their patrons, rent, they'll rent their patrons right. costumes right. so that they full live in the world. So, but like this, this year, because you're doing a premiere, you've got the budget. You're just unsuspecting guests. It's like, Oh, you're dressed to the nines. That's great. Now you're going to be, now, now we're going for gangs well, in New it, York. Forget what you were wearing. You're gangs of New York now. So, Exactly. It completely puts them into period. It gives them something free, you know, and it just throws them into the character. And also the exchange itself, you know, it's like literally a a couple of actors as a kind of husband and wife that don't really get along fighting with one another and, you know, commenting on what these people are wearing and telling them that they have to try this other thing on and dress differently and, (laughs) you know, put them put them into the world just the kind of the first moment they they arrive. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean that's there's actually that's actually a whole thing of like onboarding people and getting them into getting them into the mood. Like how how often are you doing events at House of Yes or or at the Brooklyn Museum? Brooklyn Museum. Um so our we started weekly. Yeah. Um and then as productions part of our like creative philosophy is to try something new in every single show mm. and to make every single show bigger. And that gets to be a lot for fifty with fifty two weeks a year. So <laughs> not only that with mathematics, if every show needs to be bigger, we're now officially I think forty three or something. So it you know raising the bar becomes more challenging. So yeah. we went from weekly to biweekly to monthly, and now we're kind of on the roughly the monthly, and potentially we sneak in twice a month. Um, so yeah, constantly creating. So what have you, what have you learned about onboarding people into the world in that time? Because like that, that moment of like dressing folks as they arrive, like that's, that's, I mean, you, you don't always have the budget to do something like Correct. that, but what other, what other sort of things? It, can, it can be simple things. Basically the idea is to plant the seed of the narrative from the first moment they interact with you. Okay, that can be the way you call the show and name the show, the way you name the tickets, the way you describe the event itself. You know, you can already tease people into this world. So, for instance, I, you know, I Am the Night is the last kind of immersive premiere we did. So I'm drawing from that. That actually did have a budget. But just to RSVP for the event, you RSVP'd at, you know, G. Hodel, which is the main character. Uh, in the show at turner.com the invite itself didn't invite you to the premiere it invited you to an art happening that the main character is throwing that he would like you to see so you know basically from the any moment of interaction and you go as early as rsvping to this event you can start planting 
moments of narrative for the audience and with a bit of with a bit of mystique if you can which makes them kind of question and wonder and want to go and find out and uncover more details it's, it's funny you mentioned the the jihodel thing because like yeah. looking back oh yeah that was on there i like i didn't even i didn't even clue into it when i saw the invitation because i'm so i'm so used to right. like cranking <laughs> through so it's like yep kate just gonna yeah. do that it's like thanks you know <laughs> moving yeah. on but like yeah, no, that's, I mean, that, that is sort of like the funny thing is like when, when you're, when folks who are like always going to this stuff, we, we can kind of forget that a lot of the magic is, is in slowing down and is in the details and that sort of that heightened sense of reality that comes from weaving in at every step and every breath uh all these these elements. I mean one of the things I thought that was interesting about the the I am the night premiere um because I, I went I went to the, the setup you did at the, yeah. the chateau was you know you had you had all these 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 art installation pieces going on and and you also had like a, a very special one happening but it it you managed to create this sense of both oh this would be for people who just want to be at like oh a premiere party for the show it's like oh this is a nice little premiere party for the show but like that pervasive sense of the world and and this sense of not even the sense but the moments where things were kind of really happening because like one of the things that you had was there was a woman who was uh, kind of recreating a Yoko Ono performance art piece and in which uh, her dress is being cut off sort of piece by piece by piece and that's really happening. And so you've got this piece of art that's actually occurring. Someone else was like doing a live painting. Um, right. You know, so you have, so you have, and you have like someone who they had a woman who was like, looked like she was on point for about 20 minutes, which is like brutal for a ballet dancer. And you had, you had a three woman, hours. Yeah. Three hours. Well, the 20 minutes at a time, right. For three hours, right. The 20, 20 minutes yeah. on, five minutes yeah, off, 20 yeah. minutes on. Right. I was like, I stood there watching for a long time. I was like, oh, she's still on point. <laughs> She, oh, she's finally put one foot down. Thank God. I was like getting blisters yeah. in sympathy. Um, and, and, and so there's this, there's this kind of duality already there in that, yeah, this is, this is a premiere party, but it also really was a weird art party all at the same time. It, it was, it was the thing itself. It was, I mean, it was, look, part of it. I think part of something that personally I'm guilty of and becomes a little bit of a little cinema aesthetic is completely overbooking the entertainment and putting in just so many things. Uh, Good old maximalism. Maximalism to as, the max. <laughs> as, as Meow Wolf likes to call it. Yes, absolutely. So on that front, um, it you know when we were looking at the run of show, it was basically looking a little bit at like something that looked like a festival, and that mm -hmm. festival was a festival of art happenings. We had the cut piece happening at the same time that we had the Joe Miller live painting happening at the same time that we had the Minotaur stage, which had circus performers dressed um, in bodysuits. Um, that were part of the backdrop of a surrealist painting. So they're forming shapes and moving around and it kind of extend on the depth of the painting that we're performing in front of. We had the mirror people that they were, that was also part of a Joanne Jonas um, 1960s art piece. 
um, the Universal Lightroom, which was another art happening, and it was based on Alan Capro's words installation from 1965. I think I think all up we had eight concurrent live art exhibits or installations or happenings, however you want to call them, happening literally at the same at the same amount of time. And as you pointed out, we were aware of the fact that. In the narrative of this world, this is an art happening at the Chateau. In the reality of the world that we live in, it's a lot of people that are coming to network that just go to a regular premiere party and want to have a drink. And, you know, they're not, necess they're not necessarily coming to be part of the world as in buying a ticket. And we need to be conscious of that. And we need to basically let them feel like they're at a any regular comfort of a normal premiere party they're going to and build as much curiosity around to, to reel them in. It seemed like you did build a lot of curiosity because I remember coming out of what was going on in Room 29, and I want to talk a little bit about yeah. that. Um, and and there was just people lined up down the hallway. like the, there, there were people, because you were, I guess what was the, the lure was like, do you want to see some real art? And apparently people really did. So how many people did you put through that? The words yeah. spread quickly. <laughs> God, that, yeah, that caught us by surprise. Uh, we ran that piece apparently 17 times. For 10 people. So 100 10 people at a time. 170 people. I think it was like 14 people when I was in it uh, by accident. There were 14. Uh, but um, it's 170 people. About that. Yeah, about that. Out of a in four. In one night. Yeah, out yeah. of a 450-person event, and this was meant to run to about 50 people. So we... Oh, you pushed it, yeah. Hats off, if uh, my performers are listening to this podcast, hats off for running it 17 times. Because it, it was about... God, how long was that? It was about a 10-minute piece, right? So, it was a... T yes. God, what's the math? So 100, 170 minutes. So about, what, three, three and a half, four hours? Three, we started at 8... From 8 to 9 p.m., we ran it to friends and just did a, a video shoot. And then we were meant to take a break, and we opened the door, and Patty Jenkins... <laughs> <laughs> was there among some other friends uh, that um, we really wanted to see. So we started straight away. And then it was a bit of a DIY, not totally above board performance. We rented out a room, room 29 at the Chateau. <laughs> and uh, just we were going to run with it until the Chateau were going to give us a call and just say, it's too loud, cut it. And lucky for us, that never happened. Oh, wow. So, well, because I mean, you were just one floor above the party, and the party was probably covering plenty of <laughs> correct, <laughs> plenty of the noise. If you'd just been, if you'd been running it on like a random night, <laughs> you might have had a slightly, yes, slightly yeah. different setup. That's funny. Yeah. So let's let's stay on that for a second. Yeah, so, yeah. even though we were, you were at the premiere party, you were running the premiere party, you were still even even in the confines of that with like the most art thing. Cause I would say like, the, like this, this was definitely the most intensive piece of the whole collection. So like, and so there was something kind of very appropriate to being like, Oh, you want to see some real art? Cause <laughs> this was, this was an original piece riffing on the show. Um, it was still DIY and underground. So even in the heart, even <laughs> the heart of a fully staffed up paid for Hollywood, we're still, we're still on the run from the, the law. Oh, <laughs> this was as DIY as you could possibly do it to convert that room 29 into 
you know, what we called the light box and yeah. getting all those projectors in and, and rigging the place and changing it at a, at a, at a place like the Chateau that's, yeah. you know, has so much history to it uh, and so much prestige and ways of doing things a certain way. Everybody thought we were absolutely crazy. And, you know, getting the team together, we really had to go guerrilla on this. And we even brought in our kind of lighting team and audiovisual team um, that come from a DIY art background and did it the DIY way. And there were, there were other folks, because you hired, you hired a good number of local artisans here in town, and you work with some folks who work with uh, Rogue Artists Ensemble. Yes. And, uh, and that was something like, I enjoyed seeing, was that there was this sort of... I kept on running into people on the production side who were like, oh, I know you from this. And then and then seeing folks from, from the, the New York crew, because you had like Lily... Was, right, was part of the, was part of the crew, and I'm just like, oh, this is fantastic. It's like <laughs> L.A. and New York working on something together. Because you had done you had done the premiere also in New York, just a couple of nights earlier, and I know like my New York crew went out to, to see it. But like, Correct. did did that have the light box at it or no? no? New York was basically a way for us to have the best party that we just wanted to have mm. with our friends. <laughs> 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 If the network hears that, you might not get to do that again. No, they, if the network is hearing this, we love the network because the network has basically patroned artists, given them a complete creative control and encouraged us to create and be artistic and not treat this as an event production company. So they, the network commissioned us with go throw the party that you've always wanted to throw and we will back and support all your weirdness and all your craziness because the series itself is essentially about a main character that is a sponsor, you know, a patron of art. In these immersive premieres, it was a network that was a patron of art and they encouraged us to create our own. So the New York event was, it was very different. It wasn't a period piece. Mm. We extended a narrative to imagine that this um, main character, George Hodel, started an art foundation, and this was his private gala. So mm. it was, we removed the period component, which helped us with budget, uh, allowed us to invite all of our friends and all of our artists and have a really fun, spectacular party. We had 22 performing artists. We had a lot of human live sculptures. We kind of went a bit more on the, um, on the, seductive and sexual tones that mm -hmm. the show has and we kept uh and we kept a lot of the kind of real 1960s art happening and performance pieces um for the chateau in la right so new york was a let's survive this so that we can make the chateau happen gotcha gotcha um gonna gonna scroll back yeah. to the light box for a second because that, that was a particularly interesting moment because I got to be in there at the time that one of, uh, so, so we should probably like pitch the show. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a limited series. It's a biography essentially of a woman named Fauna Hodel Correct. or Hodel, Hodel. I can't remember. Her uh, Hodel? Fauna, I, I don't take pronunciations oh, from me, but I, I, I pronounce it as Fauna Hodel. Yeah. I just, yeah. I just watched the show last night and I'm like, okay, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, but I forget. I, I butcher names, but I do. Um, and so 
she was a young woman growing up in uh, in Sparks, Nevada. She was raised, uh, you know, believing that she was, uh, you know, the the biracial daughter of this African American woman. Uh, she finds out that in fact she's adopted. That her her you know mother is part of a very rich family, the Hodels, who are in Los Angeles, uh, and uh, she goes out there. Uh, she comes to Los Angeles and she finds out, uh, starts to learn that uh, her grandfather might be maybe the one of the most dangerous men who's ever lived in L.A. Uh, you know, art patron and also a suspect in the Black Dahlia murder, um, perhaps the suspect in the Black Dahlia murder. Uh, so it's a true crime, true biography story that has the art world as its backdrop. Uh, and, uh, directed by Patty Jenkins, who directed Wonder Woman and Monster. Uh, and uh, the the lead sort of uh, reporter character is played by uh, everyone's favorite Chris Pine. Uh, I was going to say everyone's favorite Chris. <laughs> but then people would argue about Chris Evans versus Chris yeah. Evans. But every, who doesn't love Chris Pine? I don't think anyone doesn't love Chris Pine. He's awesome. Um so that's that's the that's the show, and there's this deep theme in it about identity, particularly about Fauna's identity, because she's. What I thought was really interesting about the pilot, because like, I'll say this much for what you guys did, you guys did such a good job of that premiere party. Because I I didn't go to the screening, I just came to, to see what you guys did. But by the time I was done with it, I was like, I gotta watch this show. So like, <laughs> if they were just having you guys pop up as the ad for the show, I think this would be the number one show in America. It's just like, what's going on? This thing. We're sitting there, we're standing around, we're talking. We're like, what is up with this show? This seems insane. Who are these people? What's going on? Like, this was the stuff that was going on. We got to watch the show. So I instantly went on iTunes and bought it, even though I don't have TNT. I was like, oh, I can buy it. So TNT got my 15 bucks. Um, Congratulations. You know, I don't know how much you spent, but it was worth it to get my $15. Um, (laughs) So as part of this, the light box that we've talked about before, you, you, had a videographer like lift elements from the show, kind of remix it into the kind of this, this tone poem setup and uh, mixed live performers into that so that you were projecting elements of the show in a non-narrative way, but, but, but thematically consistent with what's in the show. And uh, the one, there was one performer who was a dancer, one performer who was a singer and uh, a couple of people, Someone who's brought into the space at the beginning, like one of the, the one of the audience members is brought in at the beginning. Correct. And another one, ultimately everyone gets brought into the space, but another one initially is also brought in to have like a moment, an opening and a closing moment. And it just so happened that when I was in there, uh, the opening moment was with the director, it was Patty Jenkins. Uh, but the closing moment was with one of Fauna's daughters. And it, it was really mind blowing to watch this moment where there was a young woman, a performer embodying fauna lip syncing to the actress who plays fauna. Like, so fauna's words were coming uh, through the actors through, <laughs> through like the actor who plays her in the show, but, uh, but seemingly out of the mouth of the young performer. And she came, comes out and she like takes Fauna's daughter into into the space with her for the closing moment, and just just that moment, it was it was in the moment I was watching. It's like I put it together. I was like, oh my god, I think that's, and then found out 
indeed yeah. later. Like, and you were right behind me watching that. Did you know that I, she was going to grab her? I had no idea. That Did was. Did know that she was grabbing? No. No. So she had no idea that she was like reaching out, playing the mother to like the real woman. I, I, I need to ask Roby, which was the, the dancer and choreographer in that piece, whether she knew those were Fauna's daughters. Um, we, I mean, this whole... Or does she per- even knows now? Does she know now? Did you tell I her I think afterwards? she knows now. I also, our piano player, we also had a live pianist. There was a grand piano in the room. And during rehearsal, we, you know, kept giving him direction of whether to play kind of like minor chords or major chords. He was leaning towards the major... We were, you know, asking him to play more minor. And then he suddenly realizes that, you know, the daughters are in the room and that they're just bawling, crying. And he just starts hitting the minor chords <laughs> and just going for it. Oh, my God. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, they, yeah they, were, they were super moved. And it was so, yeah. it was so, it was surreal. And the piece is a surrealist piece of art. So, like, the, again, these layers, it's like, a, a very surreal moment where reality was was intersecting with art. Ugh. And yeah. it was uh, that whole piece. So to give a bit more kind of backdrop on that piece, that piece itself was inspired by a conversation with the daughters. Mm. And again, I'm 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 giving so much credit um, to the network and to TNT because you know honestly they've they've they did not act as a client they acted as an art patron and first thing in when commissioning us um they asked us they insisted and asked that we create this audiovisual piece as the secret performance you know in room 29 the economics of it did not make any sense to take you know a penthouse suite at the <laughs> chateau and turn it into an audiovisual light box spectacle to 10 people at a time um, but the one thing that they did say is that from the network's perspective, the choice of doing the film, I Am The Night, was very much about having, you know, a female uh, lead character and, you know, a, a strong, strong woman, a positive woman. And they kind of wanted to basically have an art piece that is a bit of a homage to this very special person. Um, and... Straight away after kind of saying that, they basically organized an interview and a conversation between us and Fauna Hodel's daughters. And in that conversation, what, you know, really came to light was the strength of her kind of personality, her resilience in the face of, you know, having a evil uh, stepfather that she kind of found out later, uh, dealing with so many complex issues of identity growing up. And, um, yeah, so we kind of, we, we took those pieces and we went through all the dailies of the show that the network shared with us and collaged together, you know, our own basic narrative of Fauna Hodel discussing the notions of identity, confronting the darkness and the kind of, you know, evil that existed in her family, exists in all of us, and then basically coming to this resolution of acceptance, um, and if you like forgiveness, non-judgmental, love, any yeah. kind of way you'd want to call that and bringing everybody in. So that that was the piece. And we, you know, we were so engrossed in creating it. And the first time we opened the doors, we found Patty Jenkins there with Fauna's daughters in no planned fashion. Yeah. And just, we weren't even meant to start. And... 
we went back to the house and we told the performers, guys, I think I think it's on. Can we do this? And um, yeah, I, I still don't know if they all know who who was in that room and what that meant, but they definitely felt something. Yeah. yeah. No, it felt it was it was such a strange moment to like because the end were like led past. Yeah. Uh, or were led out and and they had Fauna's daughters and, and, and Patty kind of clumped together uh, and were having this. They were having they were having a good cry. They were having a good wow. Process. And and it was very weird to be like, OK, we got to move by them. And like, I think everyone who, who, who was there was very much aware that um god what is there's a there's a term i was just reading which had the book on me uh limbic something i'll, I'll look it up later mm. for the show notes but like there's there's a w- there's a way in which you know like you know when like if someone's like really amped up or depressed and they walk in the room the room kind of changes you can yeah. feel the room change right like that's 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 part of our so psychological sociological makeup. Like we, yeah. we know how to feel a room, right? Like it's, it's not, it's not magic. It's, it's, we pick up on little cues, you know, the way people are breathing and sounds and whatnot. It's coming in underneath our, our conscious perception necessarily. I think I, I got to bet that almost everyone in that room was so aware <laughs> that something was happening with those folks, even if they didn't know who they were. Right. You know, like even they weren't paying attention to like what little things being said and like, you know, yeah. like overhearing someone say like, Oh, Patty. And then you're like, Oh, like, oh and like, uh, and then realizing, Oh crap, that's what's going on. Just this moment of, um, that, 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 that these folks were, were so, so touched by what they had seen, uh, that it, it kind of reached past and it had, it had given them permission to like mm. open up on those feelings. Right. And to be to be able to bear witness to that, sort of, I mean, it, it really it really reminded me of the raw power of immersive and experiential work, right? Like, I mean, you're not always going to get those conditions where you're sitting in a room with a piece of art that's about someone's deceased parent, and that person's there with you. Like, that is a very rare time, although. The second time in twelve months, I've. Uh, but in that yeah. case, it was the performer. It was about their, uh, so you know, slightly different. Well, the the uh, person's parents and the director, right? That that yeah. made the piece. Yeah, yeah. like very very yeah. rarely going to be that. But but we, we do occasionally get to be. I think for a lot of people who are fans of immersive, like they're looking for that kind of catharsis beyond catharsis, like something that 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 doesn't just give them the permission that a narrative catharsis does, but mm. somehow becomes, uh, becomes more becomes something that becomes a real moment that happened to them. Uh, but there's also value in just bearing witness to that yeah. and, and, and remind being reminded that, you know, the value, the value of our experience of being human isn't just with the experiences that happened to us, but it's also the experiences that happen to other people and that, inf- that informs everyone's lives. And yeah, I just, I count myself really lucky to have just like by accident, you know, five minutes later, five minutes sooner, like would not have been that. It was just the God's that decree. Was, that, was, that was a moment in time. Yeah. That was a moment in time. Yeah. But it wouldn't, yeah. but a moment in time that was completely aided and abetted by the work that you guys made, which is what's truly magical. Yeah, and it was a moment in time for us as well. I mean, Patty was not aware that we were creating this this work, which was a collage of her work. 
you know, and Fauna Hodel's daughters um, were aware that we're creating art that's based on, you know, that, that's based on their mother, but they had no idea what or how. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for me personally, to be fortunate enough to have been in the room when they just all happened to be there because, you know, they, that, 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 that was chance. The, this whole performance was very much about who discovers it and who finds out. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, there wasn't a planned guest list of when it's going to be performed and to who it was very much a, let's pass this kind of secret invite around and see who shows up. And lucky they all kind of came at the same time. And it, it was, I mean, honestly, I'm still getting shivers thinking of the emotion in that room, yeah. uh, with, with all those people. I mean, I remember go, before going in, like there were people yeah. coming out and they were like, well, it's really intense. And that was just like, <laughs> and like, <laughs> <laughs> afterwards I was like they had no idea how intense it was went to a totally different and but like and and, and just you know to be clear like there was yeah. there was this performance art piece there was a projection piece you had a little immersive prologue beforehand and that there was sort of a setup moment so kind of the lounge through so you kind of you crafted you crafted the world of the piece which was living inside the world of it was just like Russian dolls. It was super yes. nice. So there was an art piece that was wrapped in like an immersive container that was wrapped in an immersive party, you know, that was wrapped in a premiere where you had you had like uh, the invites to the premiere or like the, the in world invites there was like a newspaper you printed up that had like context for what was going on. So yeah. you, you had a lot you had a lot of a lot of layers to play with. A lot of maximal layers to play with. A lot of layers within layers within layers within layers. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of where we get our kicks. Are you feeling like you're getting spoiled by having budgets to play with like this? Like oh it's going to be it's going to be okay to go back to DIYness, you know? And like what are you going to do? Like you're going to go to your next time you're doing a party at the house of yes and you're like all like, oh, I just can I have like a hotel room to to like bring everybody into?" <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, look, the last two months of my life working with this budget, working with the team that we got to work with were probably the most enjoyable I, I can recall in a very long time. Wow. Having such an amazing brief team and and a budget to play with. Um, but, you know, the beauty of the beauty of this project in general, it's all the people that we work with and collaborate with. It's very much run on. You want to be involved. Mm. You want to creatively contribute and you want to do this. And the budget is a scalable thing. As long as there's trust, if people see us, you know, working with a network and there's budget, we can afford to pay corporate rates. When we're doing our DIY shows, everyone knows it's a DIY and let's just get in that attitude. And that comes with a completely different set of magic because if, you know, you you need to make, you just need to make amazing creative decisions based on not having resources. And often you discover incredible things in that process. How much of that stuff do you then get to apply to to other things like it's like i mean i don't want to sound like i'm like all yeah. focused like well, how and then, then how do we make money on that but like it's more more to the point of when you're operating in diy mode how much of that prepares you for when you do get hit with like a big budget because i, I think of I think of times where I'll see stuff and I'll know that the budget was huge and I'll just be like, where did the money go? Cause I'm not seeing it. Oh my and, God. and, and I'm looking at what you guys did at the Chateau and like, 
I can tell where the money went in, in the good way, right? And not like, oh, they spent it all on that chandelier thing. It's just like there was not, there wasn't a square, there wasn't a cubic meter of that space that didn't feel, that, that you could have, that you could played with that didn't feel like it had been invested on. Like the only thing that felt remotely out of place was that there is a great um, record player in that room, in the, in the main room there of the Chateau lobby. And like there's, there was um, a collection of vinyl and up front someone had placed Top Gun. That was the only <laughs> oh, thing. No. I took a photo of it. Oh, that was no. the only thing. Some, I do not I know who did that. I was not aware of that. That was the only <laughs> thing that was out of sorts. Was someone had done that. Someone planted the future of somebody, 1980s. Yeah, and, someone had done that, right? But like, I do not know how that was. Ever. But that was the yeah. only, oh, so I looked at it, I was like, oh, that's interesting. I, I wonder if someone was just playing the record earlier and like went on, right? So like, but every, every cubic meter. Yeah. you you were you were zeroed in on so like i could feel like you know there was there's density to it so first of all on the top gun that was a prankster yeah <laughs> oh yeah no i could tell yeah. uh and like, we, this is not belong here. We, we had coltrane and miles davis and all these kind of <laughs> other records uh peppered everywhere so uh it's it's funny and i love that you observe that um i think the answer taking all the details <laughs> even the ones that don't belong so. it's it's all part of it it's what it it's what makes it um i think to answer your question about budget it's I, diy culture i think translates to what i call heart in productions mm. and that's something that is rare to find and that's when you see something that is just mega expensive but absolutely soulless mm. um and you know that is if i'm looking at what i've learned from the iy culture uh or just in general from more like a immersive art collective as opposed to a production company it's that real desire to want to see your creativity come to life so you fight for every single detail to make it happen and this is completely spread across with the entire team that worked on this on this project um literally fighting for every single detail and making the impossible happen um shout out to matt hill and darcy scallion that were part of the um scenic world and also a big part of the creative force for this um for for what took place at the chateau and you know this was kind of going back to the drawing board 10 times and negotiating with our fabricators 10 times to be able to create this ballerina piece that you know was expensive to do but really we didn't have the full budget to do it um if this was just a, a regular kind of event production company so it's literally you're still fighting for it in every step of the way and when you take that approach and you take that attitude and you actually really want that and have that heart, you find that other vendors cater cater for that or let you be or let you exist. Mm. You know, the what you, the performance that you saw in room 29, three days out, we got quotes from vendors that we just couldn't afford to do the traditional way. When you look at, you know, almost union style labor, we couldn't afford it we explained to them that we spent five weeks working on the creative and we just have to make this happen. And they made concession and let us bring in our DIY team to kind of execute that. So, you know, I think in kind of more soulless productions, 
the money just goes on administration and on red tape and on paying completely overpaying for production items that you don't need to spend that much money and if you've yeah. got the, the confidence to execute yourself you know you can get things done for a fraction of the budget where where do you want to take little cinema at this point because you know, like i mean from a certain point of view you're doing pretty good right now you've got these partnerships with these venues you've got tnt not only being a client, but being a patron in, in the <laughs> classical sense. Um, what's what's the course ahead look like? It's a great question. Um, I am trying to navigate it in basically in a way that keeps us moving forward on all fronts. So the DIY House of Yes shows that are highly experimental, that effectively lose money because the ticket price will just never come close to you know the magic or the spectacle that we're able to put together is something i never kind of want to stop doing mm -hmm. i really see that as the creative kitchen i see that as that magic and that energy um so we've got another show coming up march 14th to 16th that we're going to create and do that and do it the old old school way and the way we're used to and and stay true to the heart uh, I think the concept of these immersive premieres is something new and untested. No, no one is doing them. Um, we greatly enjoy them. And so far, they've been very successful. So we're looking at, you know, doing a few more of these. Um, on a more kind of personal level with Little Cinema, I think for me, the dream to be able to see this moving forward is really legitimizing the art form. Mm. And... In cinema and film, it's a little bit of an archaic industry. Um, it hasn't evolved. The rules and the regulations around it and the standards uh, also haven't evolved. And if you look at kind of all these other mediums in, you know, in music, there's been just so many different forms of taking the same song and, and, and dishing it out in different ways. Um, you know, remixing, radio edits, orchestras there's so many ways of telling that musical story in immersive theater there's so many different immersive you know immersive techniques popping up but a bit more to the traditional theater sense and when it comes to film and cinema it's uh it's still it's still widely unaccepted to view things through a different lens or to treat things in a slightly different way like we're trying to do. Mm. Um, so I think the kind of the long-term dream for Little Cinema is, you know, that that word resonates with you're not you're not experiencing the film the way it was originally intended to be experienced. And and there's always a twist, there's always an angle, there's always a spectacle to it. Yeah. Well, and the, you're not experienced the way it was meant to be experienced and that being a good thing as opposed to being yes. like the way people sometimes will say that and what they mean is pan and scan. And what you're talking about is what you're talking about is the remix is the yeah. riff, you know? Um, well, I, 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 this is something I was thinking about earlier. I mean, if someone's, someone might listen to what you're talking about and say like, well, wait, isn't that Rocky? Isn't that Rocky horror? Like people interacting and like there's, there's that ritual around the Rocky horror picture show, but that's not remotely, 
Although I'm sure you guys could probably do like an absolutely killer version of Rocky Horror Picture Show. That is not remotely what you guys do or or it could fit within the confines of what you do. But like you're you're bringing you're bringing a, a show to life riffing all, like a like a, a real stage show and a real experience to life that is riffing off the movie and it's not just oh folks are like sitting in and like calling back to the, the film or someone dancing and like lip syncing to a musical number i mean just the fact that you brought up rocky is a great example for people that don't know or understand what we do yeah. It's a very simple, oh, it's like Rocky Horror Picture Show meets <laughs> Cirque du Soleil with a weird art house sensibility to it. Yeah. Um, How long have you been in Los Angeles now? <laughs> like two days? Wow, that was polished. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just happens. So. It just happens. You spend five days here. I was trapped here once before I lived here for five days. I said, I'm not going to become the guy who pitches his screenplays in a cafe by day four. <laughs> right. I was doing Trying it. to go by coastal. Um <laughs> But the fact that Rocky Horror Picture Show is still the only example of an interactive film experience of, you know, of having that cult ritual or having a play on the film while the film is taking place with the hundreds of thousands of amazing films that are out there, that this is really the only one that it's properly been done to. You know, there there might be a few other examples, The Room being a more recent one, but... Mm -hmm this kind of cult-like um and it's also always the same it's um it's given me so much more ambition to kind of keep pushing our art form and and giving that if you'd like rocky horror treatment though it's not a great example that kind of in embedding interactivity highlighting different scenes changing elements of the narrative showing a different emotion to people into a lot of different films as an acceptable form is really something that we strive for and want to you know want to work hard to change and there's great film titles that you can just view through a different lens you know you can take never-ending story and you can put a very emotional deep twist on it mm. um by by just highlighting you know highlighting highlighting certain sentences, um, asking the audience to see things in a different light, it's yeah it's um, trying to find the right words to articulate this because you know it's 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 really it's it's viewing films through a different lens. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm cracking like it's. Yeah. I mean that's one of the reasons why we have cinema is is because words fail us right. Like, yeah. You know that's that's sort of the the fascinating thing, um, but and it's and it, I mean that's that's also one of the joys about trying to talk about art in general is like trying to trying to use like dumb words to to capture things that are way more ephemeral than just what a what what a script can yes. give you. You know, it's also I mean I think also. Um, Times are changing. I mean, I mean, um, I was fortunate enough to go to and perform at Future of Storytelling um, in late October 2018. I got to meet Darren Aronofsky there, and he described film as the art form of the 20th century, and also just kind of discussing, you know, him as a very successful director you know, just dealing with the consequences of modern day reality that he needs to imagine how people are going to watch his amazing piece of work on an iPhone. Yeah. 
So, uh, you know, that culture changed from people going to a 3,000-seater theater to kind of watch this new film. Um, the one thing that has become more apparent today is people do go out and for live experiences. Yeah. And so if records aren't selling and box office of films, you know, aren't selling as much as people aren't going to the cinema, people are going to see live events and live shows. And the adrenaline and the emotion and the feeling and the atmosphere of what means to have a successful live event is a different treatment and a different approach to how you'd mix the film to watch on an iPhone or to watch at your kind of laptop computer. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's kind of, that's something that I'm preaching and trying to, to do in, in little cinema productions is take that into account. Understand that the room is full of humans with adrenaline, with emotions, and cater and change elements to, to turn the film into a live experience. So have you, I mean, have you started working with filmmakers to like make original pieces for little cinema? Uh, good question. Uh, kind of, it's been discussed. Um, haven't, haven't started doing that yet, but we've recently been accepted, um, with our art form and been given trust. So we've done two premieres so far, uh, that were like really immersive premieres. If you'd like, not like I am the night where we took the content and we, we gave it the little cinema treatment and that was to um that was in partnership with an animation studio called cartoona based in brooklyn that just gave us all the content and just said do your thing and that happened the second time with meow wolf that gave us their documentary and allowed us to premiere it in a very wild and creative way um so that was working with the filmmakers to present their work for the first time to a live audience, not as they had originally intended the work to be presented. And that was incredibly successful. And it was great to see also these directors and, you know, the show creators that have slaved over every single frame and detail enjoy themselves so much in a live context and be surprised and see how somebody else is riffing on their work. Um, so the next kind of stage there and we're in discussions is, you know, looking at designing content for this live experience. But um, I don't think that's, I mean, I'm almost a little bit worried about that because we've perfected our art form so much to take something, you know, we're collage artists, yeah. to take something that, that exists and to cut it up and, you know, dish it out in a different way. So if we're designing it from the beginning... Uh, it might have some interesting results, but that's, (laughs) yeah. Well, there's, there's, there's always starting with the short or starting with the short before the feature. So, right. (laughs) Right. Um, But I I could see, I mean, cause I just, I'm thinking about like, it just, you know, when you're talking about that, it makes me think of sort of, you know, what Coppola was trying to do with his live mixing of, mm. of, I can't remember the name of the film. I mean, it didn't go over well. Uh, and then what, you know, Lance Weiler was doing uh, back in like the late 90s, early aughts with, uh, I think it was like uh, Head Trauma, I think was the name of the film. Okay. And he would do these live screenings where elements of the film would pop up. Um, like there was, there were actors from the film would like, like emerge into the space. Um, so, uh, or they had like a, a, a kind of a, a text message would like, follow you home this was like early in wow. the days of sms right before that was wow. easy 
Uh, and Lance is at uh, Lance is at Columbia. Uh, I think wow. is he at Columbia or is that I think it's at Columbia. Yeah. So I gotta connect you guys. Yeah. Um, and just like uh, I mean, he's he's off doing like a lot of like. A storytelling stuff with the Internet of Things is like, like, mm. like kind of where his head's at these days, but this this idea, you know, he sort of start he started as a filmmaker and then wanted to find ways to like get the films to kind of branch out and like it was um oh my god it was like Sundance twenty eleven so it was like eight years oh god eight years ago now um he had a piece there they were they were angling to make a feature and the feature didn't happen. But there was this, um, they had built this whole alternate reality game, fairly elaborate one, that was uh, interacting with their, the short that they had in the festival. Uh, and they had some elaborate stuff. Like they had gone to like, Microsoft had given them one of the surface tables back when those were still a thing. Like and it was one of the first cool. ones. Yeah. And so it was like, you had to go out, find a water bottle and you could, bro- if you brought it in, you put it on the surface table, then suddenly it like gave you information or you could like take a phone. This is like early one of the early Google phones, you could like put it on the thing and then like photos would spill out of it. And it was like, what the hell? And this is like in the basement of wow. the firehouse and in at Sundance. They they built it all custom. So it didn't all work perfectly. But there was like it was freaky stuff like using like NFC, which were like this like the thing we all now use in our phones, which we use just to like pay for like, you know, water or beer. Yeah. Like they were using it one of the first phones to hook up with and they had this whole um this whole wall full of pictures of people. And if you took the phone and held it up in front of a a picture, uh, the phone would read the NFC marker in the picture. It would bring up the picture onto your phone. And then the, all the pictures had their eyes closed. But when you held the phone up and the, the phone picture materialized, then the eyes would open. (laughs) And so like that, there was all these like weird, like technology. They were really interested in the intersection of, you know, technology, but at the heart of it was this, there was a film that they were trying to like, you know, riff the story on. You were the elements of the, the film's world was sort of bleeding into our world. Um, and they had a screen the whole time. Well, no, no. So like the, the thing in the firehouse basement, the firehouse, like that was the installation that was related to it. And then the film was this part of the shorts program. Got it. Right. So like the film, but this is the other funky thing. They were also, they were also making, sh- they were really ambitious. They were making <laughs> shorts. They were, they were shooting some footage a lot, like while they were there and they were updating that and putting that online. So like the story progressed and was like unfolding, but it was like the filmmakers, it was, it was mad ambitious and like they never, wow. they never did get the feature. Uh, but this idea of, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's, there's been a few other beautiful visionary weirdos mm. who are some of my favorite people in the world who have been out here in these far off distant like lands of like, how do we, how do we m- m- merge the cinema yeah. and live? And everyone's had like their own sort of like take on it. Like, oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And the thing I get excited about is the prospect of like, if we can get some of these folks to start like bumping into each other and just things metastasizing just going like totally crazy because i feel like i feel like a lot of them were were working well before we were ready for it Mm. and everything you were talking about there about you know people you know people aren't buying you know no one buys cds anymore people buy vinyl yes they buy vinyl because vinyl's an experience you know it's something you can touch and hold and it, it and granted the audio quality often you know isn't as good as 
you know, what you have on your phone because half the time you don't have a good enough record player to like really get the most out of the vinyl. I know this. I own a bunch. Yeah. I own a bad record player and a bunch of great vinyl, um, and so it never sounds right. But having having the album cover, having all the stuff, it's it's, well, it's things critical. also lead from one to another. You know, the yeah. music is the one I keep uh, kind of going. The music industry is a is a is a great example. But you know, I've often heard a remix before I heard an original that made yeah. me want to go and hear the original. Um, or vice versa, but, or in this instance, you know, you saw our remix Mm -hmm. and then you were curious enough to what the hell did these guys actually do and what is the story about? And you went and you purchased the version on iTunes. Exactly. And if you do collaborate and work in partnership with these content creators or with these studios, and this can also be a big new blockbuster title that comes out, um, while it's coming out in the cinemas where you can see it the way the film, you know, the way the director in the studio is originally intended it to do, but you can also go to a concert venue or, um, or a theater and see a 60-75 version that's absolutely has elements of it, but is live and has a live cast and live performers and gives part of that narrative away. If you enjoyed that, or even if you didn't, you'll probably have the curiosity to then go and try and explore and understand more of what you've seen. So these things feed one into another. Oh yeah, well they're doing the yeah. and I don't know if you you know, but like they're they're doing essentially like kind of a, a carnival of escape games and mini games cool. for Alita: Battle Angel, which is the Robert Rodriguez film that mm. James Cameron produced, um, and so there's 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 a bunch of little mini challenges and you're running around in a group of of like six uh doing the challenges and um it's like it's like about 45 minutes worth of gameplay and it's, right. they, they've set it in the world of the of the movie and so they're asking yeah. you questions about the movie but like they're giving you the kind of giving the answers like just doing weird stuff and it's just it's 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 a light thing it's an amuse-bouche there's not there isn't a lot of like meat on the bones but it's fun like yeah. you gotta you get your blood up and then and then you exit through the gift shop and they've got like you know the beer they were serving and the chocolate and it's got the chocolates shaped in the bar of like you know like the, the logo of the evil company uh, but it's good chocolate from a local local spot, and then uh, and then there's the manga, like the original manga books that that the mm. whole thing is based off of, right? So you know, if you really really care, you can like, you know, you get the full on, just like at Disney. Awesome. It's like you get yeah. the, you get the comic book, you get the exactly. movie, you get the this or that. You know, just keeps on extending out, and and they're running it before the film, um, charging like about like. 30 bucks for the fees to like go to the stuff. And then apparently they're going to like double the price or something like that when then like the film comes out. That's a great example of kind of, you know, dishing out the narrative in different formats and teasing it and, and making people want to, you know, see the whole thing to understand it. Yeah. And and they've popped that up here, New York and Austin. Wow. I'm going to go check that out. Yeah. 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 It's, 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 it's definitely worth, definitely worth the study. I had fun. Um, I worry about when they like double the price. I think like, I think for 30 bucks, I think particularly if you go with friends, I think it's great. Like I wound up, I ran into people I knew, which was awesome because I didn't expect anyone to be there. Uh, but I didn't get grouped with them because they had a full group and then I got paired off with some folks, but it was someone I had actually randomly met before. So I was like, Oh, Hey, I think I recognize you. So like we went through together. 
Uh, they were just, I guess, there were groups of eight. So we were like a half team. We were a group of four, but we won. So we were, that's, that's always fun to win. So you're like, oh, <laughs> hey, we beat everybody. Oh, this, this is great. Yeah. You know, going along, you're like, oh, this is okay. And then you win. You're like, this is amazing. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, the, the, that's it. yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Talk some more about it. All right. Jay, uh, how do people hunt you down? Littlecinema.net www.littlecinema.net it's it's got our info it's got a nice little contact us whether you're a performing artist a studio a director or just a patron trying to figure out how to buy tickets to our next show um and you know if you are a patron and you do want to see our magic i highly encourage people to get on our mailing list which is our main form of communicating with people and the next show in New York City at the House of Yes is on March. March 14th, 15th, and 16th. All right. Go check it out. Thank you. Thank you. Once again, I want to thank our guest, Jay Rinsky of Little Cinema. And indeed, you can check him out at littlecinema.net. Okay, um, let's see here. Wow, um, IDS is coming up in a few weeks. Uh, we're in the thick of production, so I'm kind of like losing sight of everything but that. Uh, Kevin is running a reviews here in LA, and there's a bunch of stuff. Like the Willows just reopened. Um, there's uh, a bunch of theater companies, like theater theater companies are doing some immersive work right now. I know there's some stuff done at Sun Assembly, Mr. Crow. I think that's a, a piece that's coming from out of town. Um, entirely certain i'm kind of dis- disconnected from stuff in a weird way like this this these last few weeks um sometimes it can kind of kind of weird and uncanny it's like uh i'm, I'm so used to having uh, my hands uh in the day-to-day that as i sort of have to pull pull back and pull up there's been a lot of interesting stuff out of sundance um so Tender Claws, we had on the show not too long ago, and I think they hinted at, I think Samantha Gorman hinted at they were doing something with Oculus and they couldn't say what it was exactly. Um, well, that thing has been announced. Um, and what they're doing is this, um, I, don't know if, I don't know if persistent is the right word, but they're doing a virtual environmental, like, how do I explain it? You don't have to go anywhere. But at home for the upcoming Oculus Quest, and I assume for the Oculus Rift as well, uh, like like the, the the slate of you know full six degrees of freedom Oculus devices, they're building a space where immersive performances can happen. So they're activating immersive actors who will be you know streaming in and performing in those spaces, and people at home can access those virtual spaces and interact with those performers in those virtual spaces. And what's great about it is that Tender Claws has this amazing sense of humor, this sense of whimsy, um, this, 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 this mad attention to detail, and to think about the folks who did virtual virtual reality and who did Tendar, uh, and who who think about you know emergent storytelling and just do these deep, deep dives on that sort of stuff, to think of them activating performers and making and and making worlds where they have performers in them that I mean, that's the thing. That's the thing we've been waiting for. That's the thing we've been wanting to be excited about a long time. Um, people often talk about the metaverse when they talk about, 
virtual reality. Uh, that was a term that uh, Neil Stevenson used to uh, explain sort of cyberspace in the seminal novel Snow Crash. Um, you know, it's also uh, you know very much the vibe of you know Ready Player One, which you know a lot of you know the VR heads are you know, super all about. Uh, but for me, the the Neil Stevenson book that really gets me excited about the potential of VR is uh, the Diamond Age, which was his follow up to Snow Crash. Uh, may or may not be set in the same world, but it uh, revolves in part around uh, a raptor, uh, a young woman who is an actor in. Uh, this kid's illustrated storybook, which is actually this virtual reality storybook. Um, And this is how this actor makes their living, is by playing roles in VR. And ever since I read that, and I read that as a acting student, I became very much enamored of the idea that, oh, like, in 2030, like, that's how actors' jobs will be. Or maybe I was hoping even sooner. It's like, man, like, in 10 years, right? Well, you know, it's almost 2020, and we don't quite have those jobs yet. Don't quite yet. Those are the key words, because suddenly, suddenly Seymour is standing beside you. Um, Suddenly, those jobs are here. They're here now. Um, what will become of it? Whether it will be the hit everyone has been waiting for in VR? Um, I'm just ecstatic that it's finally occurring at all. That it is occurring under the watch of Tender Claws. That our friend Elena Rachitsky over at Oculus has been shepherding this uh, this this idea. Uh, Elena, who knows the immersive space, both on the digital and the physical side, like better than anyone. Um, this, this is significant. Um, I know there's a lot of people for whom they have zero interest in the digital side of immersive. Um, I think that if you are interested in having a sustainable career in immersive, like not just have immersive be part of your mix of all the other stuff you do, you know, like writing for PR or waiting tables or doing both or like acting in commercials, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you know, designing corporate events. If you, if you really wanted a career in the art form of its own, I think, you know, think about what the world could be like if we had paid performers making a decent wage, a living wage, performing from anywhere to anywhere. That's what this means, what the potential of it is, what the increasingly close reality of it is. Um, And what you can do when you have a sustainable workflow like that and how that can feed back into your art art. There's the old Christopher Nolan, you know, one for them, one for me routine, right? Um, although nowadays I think he just gets to make them for him. It's like, he gets like, I want to do this movie. I'm going to shoot an IMAX. It's going to make a bunch of money. And Warner's is like, oh yeah, it is going to make a bunch of money. Do whatever you want. Um, and also if you ever want to do a Batman again and he's like, I did three, I'm good. Um, but seriously, Christopher, if you, if you ever wanted to do a Batman again, um, (laughs) not kidding. What we see is this chance to I don't want to say like have it all but 
you know, so long as we're in the confines of a capitalist system, uh, you have to have jobs to subsist on, uh, if nothing else. Uh, it is one of the ways it goes. There are upsides and downsides to that sort of thing. Uh, we're not going to get into that right now because not the purview of this podcast. That being said, because we are in that system, um, I get very much into the idea that there is a sustainability in immersive that is made possible through these digital applications, a sustainability for designers and for performers. Indeed, it is a lot of what motivates the work that we do uh, here at NoPro. It motivates the thinking behind IDS. It motivates some of the maneuvers that Leia makes because immersive is not just immersive theater or escape rooms. It's not just location-based VR or at home VR experiences. <coughs> it is all that and more. And we are getting to the point where it's possible to start delivering on some of those promises. Yes, I know there's a lot going on with AIs. There's a lot of, you know, they, you know, Magic Leap's got this AI character that they're developing on that like feels very human and they're figuring out the scripting and all this sort of stuff. I want to suggest to everyone that maybe the thing to do, maybe the thing for us all to focus on is not trying to replace humans with artificial intelligence because at a certain point, hi, then we're all useless, right? Okay, like the market wants to do that for efficiency's sake. So here's where I will get a little, a little political, okay? Because at heart, I believe in the dignity of humans, right? No, we're not a very dignified thing. I believe we're very messy, but I believe we, we are. <laughs> the fact that we're cursed to live means we should get to live with dignity, right? Um, <laughs> there's some, there's some advanced old age cynicism for you. I've been cursed to live. The least you can do is give me dignity. Um, with that in mind. I want to suggest that the focus should not be on building AIs that can handle all these creative encounters for a privileged few, but the development of tools that can empower us all to create together and have a sustainable lifestyle when we do. I feel like all the pieces are in the Lego box right now or are about to be and not in a, Oh, when is graphene going to be like done or when are we going to get fusion power? No, I feel like all the pieces are in the Lego box or in the case of something like, I think it's called the under that they're about to be put in the box. Like they're, they're sitting on a, a warehouse shelf where people are going like, well, there's no toys or us to take it to anymore. Uh, they're sitting there waiting to happen. And it just takes the imagination and the will for us to build that world. I'm not, I'm not sure if that world is actually on the box that all the pieces are in. So we might have to get a little creative here. It may, it may just be a spaceship. Nothing wrong with a spaceship, but we need a world. Okay. That's enough weird rant for the week. Um, I hope you get out there and experience something uh, you haven't experienced before um, in a good way. Because that could be one of those like 
careful what you wish for things. Um, I'll be around. Um, I should be hanging around the Slack a lot more. So always check us out at the Nova Slack. Uh, you can always hit up. Um, Catherine's always there all the time. And yeah, well, what is there to tell you? Eh, that's that's enough for now. Uh, let's get out of here. Uh, this podcast is like an hour and 20 minutes long now. So we're going to do the credits. Da-da-da. The sustaining backers of no proscenium are Jan Butman, Lonnie Hanson, Ari Hurston, Mark Balthazar, Sam Kinkin, and Ross Sigworth. You can join them at patreon.com slash no proscenium, our sole source of financial support. At the moment, we need you for all we do. The music from No Proscenium for No Proscenium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. English is my fifth language after Shirawak, uh, Iwakis, Vulcan, Klingon. Yep, that's four. All right, um, that's it. The managing editor of No Proscenium is Catherine Yu. I'm Noah Nelson, and until next time, I'll see you at the show. <laughs>